Hi, and welcome to Drawing Inspiration. I am your host, Mike Hendley. Episode 52, Color versus Line and Demystifying Oil Painting with Kimberly Brooks. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. Hope you're doing well. So, believe it or not, this is two years I've been doing this podcast, episode 52, and this has been fun. <laughs> I didn't think... I kind of maybe hoped I would be doing two years worth of uh, podcasts or 52 episodes, but I didn't really think it would get this far. And I'm so pleased I'm here. I am so happy that you're listening. And let's see how far this goes. This has become a real passion for me in addition to my art. And I enjoy doing this. I enjoy uh, in kind of researching the guests I'm going to have on and, and being able to share my journey and learning from these wonderful artists about their journey, their work. Uh, tips and tricks they've learned along the way and trying to apply that to my practice. And I hope you're doing the same. So I wanted to thank you for listening, and for tuning in, whether you're listening in your car or while you're creating, because I know many of you listen to this while you're painting. So I hope that you're being creative today in doing what you're doing. And I'm hoping this uh, episode, as I do with every episode, inspires you and motivates you to be creative, whether you're doing it for the first time or whether you're just continuing on with a practice you've been doing for years, I'm hopeful this podcast will be an important part of your uh, creative journey. So before going into the interview with Kimberly Brooks, I'm going to cover a few updates, and then we'll get right into it. So I did my first giveaway on Instagram. That was kind of fun. I hadn't done this before, but uh, I did a giveaway where people would uh, comment on a post, identify one of the prints on my online store that they liked, and... I did a random draw then on a uh, on a Sunday, and I used a um, uh, kind of an online tool that's designed for this for Instagram. Pulled out two random names, and I gave away two prints. They actually chose the same print, the uh, the ducklings at the door, which is uh, four ducks that I drew. That was fun. I'm going to probably do another one uh, in a few weeks' time again. I really enjoyed that. People seem to be excited about the opportunity of winning a print, but I'm going to. I think put more prints in my store. So I'm actually, that leads into my next bit, which is I'm going to be doing some limited edition prints. Uh, everything that's in my store now is five by seven. So I'm going to be doing eight by tens. And I'm also going to be doing some color. So the limited editions, I think, is going to be the uh, Chickadee, which I did uh, a little while ago, and probably the Snapping Turtle. So I'm going to be doing those as limited edition. 8x10s, so keep an eye out in the store for that. And the other thing I've been doing a lot of recently is colored pencils. So I did a commission of a cardinal. Uh, it was just a 6x8 colored pencil rendering, and I thought that went well. But before I got there, I did, I think, three in watercolor and two others in colored pencil, and I did one digital. I've been drawing a lot of cardinals lately, and I'm, I think I'm going to do a few more. And I'm going to try, I'm using, um, when I do colored pencil now, I've been trying to use this uh, toned blue paper from Strathmore, which I think gives an interesting background. So I'm able to really bring up the highlights with some white uh, colored pencil when I'm doing this. And I, I'm really enjoying that. So so I bought two new pads, uh, six by eight, and I think it was like a nine by 14 or something a much larger size. So I'm going to do a little bit more colored pencil, and I'm probably going to do some charcoal on this as well and explore this uh, this paper. I really love the color of this tone blue, so I'm going to do a little bit more of that as well. 
And uh, the last bit is I was, um, there's an artist I know, he goes by Carter on Spotify. He's a uh, musician, a wonderful singer. And I listened to one of his um, live kind of shows, I guess, for lack of a better word, on Clubhouse, where he talked about his music and the inspiration for the songs. And then he sang them and performed. And it was wonderful to be able to hear this artist uh, showcasing his work. And he was engaging all the artists to kind of, you know, draw what inspires you. So I drew a picture of Carter. I don't usually draw people. I actually shy away from it. But I did draw a picture of Carter on my iPad uh, using Procreate. So you can see that in the um, in my Instagram feed. I'll provide a link to the show to that, uh, which includes not just the final piece, but also a uh, time lapse of the uh, the work I did. So it was fun. It was good to be able to try something new. And that goes to my, I guess, my last point, which is uh, the new iPad Pros have come out. Uh, I guess they're available for ordering at this point. And I am considering it, but they're very pricey. And uh, for me, I would have to, I think, look at the whole package with pencil and and a keyboard and and everything. So it can get a little pricey. So I think I'm going to hold off for a little bit on that, but I am going to get one. So these new iPad Pros are the same form factor as the current generation iPads. I, I think the two big things is the new enhanced screen. And so I'm excited about that with maybe the potential to be drawing outdoors because it's supposed to be much brighter. So I'm curious how that's going to go. But I think the thing that has me more intrigued is this uh, the M1 chip, which is a different chip than the previous generation the same chip that's in the new uh, laptops, the new Macs that are available from Apple. And the thought that you, if you go to either the terabyte or two terabyte model, you can get up to 16 gigs of RAM. I shouldn't say up to, you get 16 gigs of RAM, but you have to get the terabyte to get 16. If you get the smaller storage capacity below that, uh, you end up with eight gigs of RAM, which is still, I think, more than the current generation. I think the current is maybe six. I may be wrong on that. But the fact that I could get a terabyte model with 16 gigs of RAM has me excited because I think with the new version of Procreate coming out where they're talking about able, being able to draw on 3D items, I think that is interesting. I think that's probably going to be something that's going to be limited to this new iPad. And the thought that with this additional RAM, that means I could probably up the size of the canvas in Procreate as well as increasing the number of layers. So from a digital kind of art perspective, this new iPad is going to be huge, uh, much larger than the jump between 2018 and the 2020 model, uh, which I think was pretty minor. So my model's a 2018. I am going to be eyeing this new iPad, but probably going to hold off. I think when you order now, which is uh, beginning of May, I think deliveries are into possibly July, end of June. So I think there is going to be a bit of a delay in getting these, but I'm going to wait a little bit and then bring in the new iPad. So I don't think we will really see the full horsepower of this new iPad until iPadOS 15 comes out, which is probably September of this year, September, October. I think that's when we'll really see the potential. Uh, the hardware, I think, in most Apple products leads the software, So, but I still think even with the new version, it's probably going to be a bit much snappier. And I think the idea of even just larger canvases and more layers will be something that Procreate can address between now and the and September. So that's all for the updates for now. 
let's head into the interview. I discovered my guest online, and after hearing her speak about oil painting, I knew we had to chat. She was talking about her new book on oil painting and how you didn't need to use those harmful solvents to paint. As I dove deeper into her bio, I found an artist with a deep and rich creative past. Her exhibitions highlight an artist on a journey with moments of hyper-focus on her subjects and her medium. Her ability to reflect on her own tools and creative process has resulted in numerous articles, artist interviews, and online teaching. To talk about her creative journey, it is my pleasure to welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast, Kimberly Brooks. Hi, Kimberly. How are you? Hi there, Mike. So nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Uh, it's. I think we stumbled across each other in Clubhouse, which I'm spending a lot of time in these days. Um, and then you talked about this new book, and then I went and looked up your work online, and I was blown away by your art. But not just that, this, this whole enterprise of you in the writing you've done and the shows you've done and uh i was just blown away so i just i just had to have you come on the podcast so thank you so much thank you for having me this is going to be fun so i always like to understand where people come from and uh, because i'm starting art quite late in life for you when did art hit for you was it something as a kid as a teenager what was that journey like for you honestly it's I know this sounds like a cliche, but it was the minute I have any consciousness, I remember wanting to make something that out of something else. So if I was taking a bath, like I think my earliest memory, because I have been asked this before, was I was in the bathtub and I remember taking the soap suds and sculpting a bird out of it. So I just knew that I, I knew that whatever I had in front of me, I wanted to sculpt or create. And then my parents got me like an eight pen set. They they were called, I believe, Marvy markers. You know, they were just like a colored pen set. And I was so meticulous in carrying them with me. And I had a sketchbook and I would always ask everybody to sit for me and I was always drawing. And then each grade that I went up in elementary school, I remember I got the eight pen set and I just lived with eight colors. And then I got the 12. And then I, when I had the 36, it was like a banana. I was like, I was in fourth grade. It was a bonanza, <laughs> you know, but yeah, no, I was always the, the drawing kid. And I remember there would be a contest for a poster for like no smoking or something like that. And I would always win all the contests. And one time I won a bicycle and (laughs) gave it to my sister, you know, just sort of, I was always that person. And I think on some level, it's just when I would lose myself in the work, but also I was a little bit shy, which people today would think was hilarious, but I was kind of shy. So it was like a nice thing to kind of retreat to as well. So everyone knew you as the artist, your parents called you the artist. Is that kind of how? Yes, yes. Yeah. And and I was like, I kind of stood out that way. Like I was at, in my high school, it was just sort of what I hung my hat on, you know, like that, that was my thing. So can I ask you a question around that? Because I had a previous guest talk about this as to this idea of, and and I don't know, I don't know if this makes sense, but it's an interesting approach. If you have a child who's an artist, by calling them an artist, oh, you draw so well, you're fantastic at drawing. Do you feel that that conversation with your parents impacted you in the sense that, well, I'm an artist. I don't have to try as hard as other people. Do you think that impacted you at all in your motivation, in your inspiration, and in doing what you were doing? 
Oh, that's such a great question. I mean, I was about to explode when you started to ask the question because I wrote a whole essay at some point about the problem with teaching kids how to think in line over color. And when you say to a lot of times girls, because I have two children, a boy and a girl, and girls Mm -hmm. are naturally more, um, they have better motor coordination. So girls tend to be told, oh my goodness, you're so talented, or you copied that thing really well. Whereas boys don't get to hear that feedback. And so a lot of times girls are nurtured to be artists and artistic, whereas boys immediately don't get that feedback, certainly not relative to girls. And so they get underdeveloped in that artistic sense. So that's why you have, I think that's the beginning of why you have a lot of boys naturally going to STEM and girls naturally going to arts and humanities. And now I think there's been a course correction to some degree because I think there's somewhat of a STEM pressure these days where girl, you know, the artistic girl of 20 years ago or 30 years ago is now going to school and majoring in biology or neuroscience because there is that STEM pressure. And I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm just saying like, this is a huge conversation. Yes, it definitely formed my identity. And I do also remember as a parent, I remember, you know, being conscious of saying good job instead of good girl, you know, when I was talking to my daughter and my son, because you wanted to commend them on the job they were doing instead of the, the person that they were. Right. But I do believe that the momentum that happens when you start to praise somebody for something becomes a part of their identity. And then you want to keep striving towards that. Then if you send your kid to a place like Interlochen, which is where I went for art initially, that'll just put your ego through a blender because you'll be around these kids who are actually like really good. (laughs) Right. You know, so I mean, it's such a it's such a great question and such an interesting subject, because I do think that the fact that men may have in the past anyway, been more represented on gallery rosters is completely as a result of maybe just general sexism, but it has nothing to do with the type of people that I mean, actually, I wonder how many art schools, what the ratio is of graduating women versus men. I know I sort of turned this into gender, but I didn't mean to do that, but (laughs) I I hope I answered your question. Well, I I think, you know, there's, we need more gender talk. And so the fact that this came out so early, I think is, is a breath of fresh air for so many of us. So I think that's absolutely fine. And (laughs) I I wanted to tell you, because I I never get tired of the story. Um, So I, I was born in 67. I have a book from 72 when I was five, where you identified what uh, job you wanted to what what you wanted as a job in life, right? What was going to be your thing, right? So, on on the the boys' side, it was doctor and fireman and policeman. On the girls' side, it was nurse, teacher, and artist. And I didn't like that, so I wrote artist on the boys' side, and I checked. Good it off. for you. Good for you. <laughs> so I think it's that I would love to talk about this all day, but <laughs> <laughs> it's good that we see eye to eye on that because I do think we we want to make sure that we. We foster this with the kids and, and whether they're ours or going into a school and speaking to children about, about art and drawing and painting, but well, uh, being mean, able to praise them, but not restrain them. Well, the, going back to even what the title of this podcast about is about, and also what a lot of your Instagram feed is, 
and your drawing and everything, because what I did was, and it, this wasn't necessarily intentional, but I, you know, again, I had a boy and a girl a year apart. So they were just both little, okay, now we're going to paint together. Now we're going to draw together. And when I brought out the paints, some of the works that my son did, it was like Howard Hodgkin eat your heart out. It was just so good. He had such a natural sense of color. And most kids don't start off with paint. They start off with markers or crayons or lines. So they're starting off with lines over color. And I think that the dimensionality and the power of using color as a language over line is so powerful that if we can get kids painting with color younger instead of with points, but with bigger brushes and then so go from big to small instead of small to fill you know color in the lines right coloring book painting i call it you know then i think that that neurologically would be so much and just emotionally be so much more impactful because when you paint i mean a lot of times and this is again going back to gender but a lot of times women shop because they are they call it retail therapy but it's really color therapy because when they go they they just want to hold a red sweater and they want to feel like they owned that red you know they want to buy they want to it's almost like a cannibalistic lust you know like i want that color red like i need to have that color and that's really about the power of experiencing and engaging with color and so i think it's because painting is you know just theoretically why do not why do they not start earlier with actual paint is it messy and a lot of it is because they think especially with oil paint which is the most natural of you know one of the most natural of the mediums it's just oil and and tiny colored rocks. It doesn't need to use, sol- you don't need to use solvent. And that's what my book is about. Notice how I just slid that in there. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> just a few minutes in and I think, yeah. No, bam, all right, okay, now we can talk about anything else. But yeah, right. so, um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's an incredible subject. The subject of painting and color and when to introduce it and who's encouraged by it. I just think it's a big subject. I think we may have to do this again because we're like 10 minutes in. And uh, also already we have these fantastic nuggets of information for people. So uh, it and it's interesting you say that because I remember going into my daughter's school when they were in grade three and four and teaching how the kids how to shade. So, uh, you know, we did some drawing, but shading as well. And uh, I guess I was falling into that, but I didn't know how to paint at the time. So I taught them what I thought I could do. But um, yeah, so less about me. For you, you stuck with art through high school. Did you then go into an art degree after that or? No, no. I, in fact, I know so many, I know so few artists whose line is straight to get where we are. So I was, you know, even though I was the artist kid, I am the daughter, I'm I'm second generation American. So you can be anything you want, honey, as long as you're a doctor first. So I got that. And my father was a, a famous surgeon and he would take me operating with him and he would say, oh, this drawing is magnificent. Now let's go do rounds. 
Sunday. Come with me, we'll pick up the bagels and you're gonna meet the patients. And he would say, just as much as he would say, oh, you're such a talented artist, he would say, you have the best bedside manner. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it was just sort of like baked in, you know, and, and, and he, I mean, my late father, Leonard Schlein, who is now, who ended up becoming an artist because he wrote this book, Art and Physics, which I edited all through high school and then college. And and it's this cult, you know, big book. But he ended up, interestingly enough, becoming an artist in the sense that he became a writer. So he kind of crossed the other side and he published his first, that book at at 50. And then his life trajectory curved into outer space where he was, you know, lecturing all over the world. And even though I, I, I went to Berkeley and just to get an art degree, like that wasn't something that one would do. Like, I mean, in my family, like that would be like, why would you do that? I mean, I, I just, right. it was like going to Mars. So I took all the medical school classes, you know, chem, ochem, biophysics, and I was trying to convince myself to want to be a doctor, but and I was I was mouthing that I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to make my dad happy, but I didn't want to be a doctor. I wanted to be an artist, but I didn't think that was allowed. So I ended up becoming an English major and an architecture minor. So, you know, <laughs> and so I was thinking the other day that I think you wrote in one of your pre-interview questions was how does it feel to be an artist? Or one of the questions alluded to, was it, did you always know and was it a straight path? And I always feel like I sort of escaped this life that I was supposed to have. And then I've been constantly like, all bets are off and all the rules are don't apply to me because I, I didn't take, it was truly the path not taken, but I went into like Gauguin's jungle. You know, it's just, right. <laughs> there is no path. It's just like blue trees and purple fields. And anyway, so yeah, it wasn't straight. I wanted to add something. Mm-hmm. When I was, because I think music is such an important part of education. So when I was around 13, I went to Interlochen Center for the Arts in Michigan. And that was, I got in for my art. So I was learning um, sculpting and drawing and painting. And it's such a magical place. And I was surrounded by music. And so I decided to take up piano. And this was at 13, which is really late. That's like Mm -hmm. 90. That's like taking Mm -hmm. up piano at an extremely late age in life for a classical musician. And You know, I had tried violin and I was always pretty bad at it, but piano just spoke to me. So I would practice and practice and practice and I would break, I would take like a a piece that was way obnoxiously harder for me than I should have begun attempting, like some kind of piano concerto. And I found that if I could break the measure down into small enough parts that I could learn it. And I just spent hours a day playing piano. And so, and then I was even performing when I was in college and you know, that just sort of was my other thing. So I was like drawing and I was painting and playing piano and that was kind of my thing. But I think piano has had a huge influence on the way that I think about and create art because I don't really feel intimidated by anything because I just am willing to break it down into the smallest parts no matter what it is. I'm willing to play it over and over and over and over and over and over again so that it becomes in my muscle memory and then I can use that passage 
as a language. And I think that very much I approach painting in a similar way. So like I decide, okay, I I, want to learn how to paint people, so I'm going to paint 100 nudes. And it helps me not be precious. Because I think a lot of the painters, a lot of new painters, they get very precious about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And if you don't think of it as the Mona Lisa, but you think of it instead like churny, which is those exercises to do scales, that it's just will help you get better because you need to earn painting miles. You need to, you need to paint, you need to literally draw the brush as over the canvas as long as possible, like miles and miles and miles. (laughs) Well, it's interesting too, because we look at our sketchbooks that way, right? Like you open this brand new sketchbook and it's like, okay, I got to make sure I get the image right in the middle. And if I, yeah, Yeah. if I mess it up, (laughs) what am I going to do? Yeah. Um, It's, it is, uh, it, I do the same thing. It's I, I, but now I have so many sketchbooks because I love paper. That it's like, well, that one's the one I'm going to muck up, and <laughs> this is the nice one. But uh, it's still a problem, right? Uh, in trying yeah, I mean, to... I I start three paintings for every one that I want to make. So I have three because it's oil dries so slow, so you got to kind of turn it around. So. I always have to know that I've got the safety painting in case I screw this one up, and then I've got the safety painting in in case I screw both those up, and then I can feel like good. <laughs> so I have a good question for you about your painting, but I'm going to wait for that. But you you asked in one of your interview questions, your pre-interview questions, mm-hmm. you said some people when they look at paintings that they have a, another sense activated and what was the other sense that you like smell or sound smell yeah. so mine is sound so like i hear music i hear when i look at a painting i'm like it needs more cello oh really so <laughs> yeah, even I, even if I it's even not yours my st- yeah i even so it's this whole i have i teach a workshop online i started doing it way before the pandemic and it has students from all over the world in it and when we meet you know, during the month, during the, we meet on Zoom calls and I have this private network where they post their images and we, it's a critique effectively. And I'm like, it needs more pizzicato. It needs more bass or, you know, like, and then I'll try to, like, I can completely hear it. So that's just my quirk. Interesting. So, so if you say something needs more cello, are you, are you talking about a color and a shape or both it can be a color a shape or a mark making thing okay. like sometimes it's it's either too uniform and there needs to be some kind of a balance so it's definitely you know i'm not high when i'm saying it i'm like completely clear-headed <laughs> but i can right. hear the music i can hear the colors i can hear the painting have you ever painted a painting with the instruments that you see you mean created the music no like would have you ever painted a painting reflecting the cello and the violin and the structure? Have you ever considered making it more defined? Have you ever considered bringing the two much closer together so that we see the painting as you see it? Well, I mean, you know, I think I'm totally intimidated by Picasso's paintings of those those violins and everything. But no, I mean, I can look at paintings, though, and remember exactly the music I was listening to when I was painting them, because sometimes I'll get really into, like, for a while, I was really into classical Indian music, you know, and that was like okay. a phase, Or, but sometimes, like, I'll get really into 80s music, like, 
or old David Bowie albums like Low or his cover, his great pinups, you know, just just off deep cuts, you know, just sort of is that is that what they call the other side of the album, like some obscure listen, you know? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I can like there's this one painting that I made called Yosemite River, and I think I was listening to the Doors when I was just full on <laughs> blasting that, and you can see it in the water, the that synthesizer in the water of that painting. At least I can. So yeah, the, the riders on the storm, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, there's a bit of <laughs> yeah. rain happening there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right at the but beginning. I do, yeah. I, but I do listen to a lot of classical, so too. But you know, you can tell if it's Rachmaninoff or Pergolesi. Yeah. So you you get this English degree with a minor in architecture, and when when does art hit you and say, whoa, whoa, whoa? <laughs> oh <laughs> well, me? it happened really shortly after. I I my first job out of college was working for, and I actually started working for him while I was in college, was for this famous designer named Walter Landor. And there's a company still named after him called Landor Associates. I think he must have been in his 70s or 80s. And I was 19. You know, I was like so young. I came to intern for him and, you know, at this company. And when I met him, he was giving a lecture at the museum of the SF MoMA on uh, he was introducing Milton Glaser. Milton Glaser was like this, you know, he made the I Love New York, the logos and the branding. He was just famous designer. So I went to this lecture when I was like 19 or 20, and he was introducing him, and he was the local that had his office on a huge ferry boat in on Pier 5 in San Francisco. And um, I remember going up after this lecture and asking if I could maybe meet with him for an intern. And internship. And I just remember being very nervous because I was going to the CEO, this old, you know, he was this famous guy in San Francisco. That was so interesting because my first intern, my first summer internship there, he had been collecting bottles, the shapes of glass bottles over the course of his life. And he was an immigrant from Germany. I think he escaped the war and, but he was raised in London and he was just this character. And so the entire top of the ship was this attic of this huge ferry boat. And it was filled with bottles. And I had to catalog all the bottles because he was giving them to the Smithsonian. So I was kind of up alone for the summer (laughs) in the attic of this boat. You know, I mean, just (laughs) I just was rolling with it. And I remember one of the first things he asked me to do is there was a famous columnist in San Francisco named Herb Kane. And he said, I need you to go to an architecture store and get me a column, like a Greek column. And he was, because he was going to give it to him as a gift, like great column, because I think he was featured into it. I mean, just sort of really <laughs> esoteric, <laughs> weird job. So, and, and then anyway, I ended up writing his speeches. So he gave a speech for Art Center, where he was speaking to a bunch of art students, and I wrote the speech for it. So I just thought, okay, this is so interesting because I'm ni- I'm 20 or 19 and I'm writing this speech that he's going to deliver to all these art students. And that was when it occurred to me, you mean you could like go to a school just to be an artist? You know, you could be an artist. That was kind of like, it just wasn't even in my consciousness. So then once it was there, it was um, a shiny planet that I wanted to go to that never left the side of my vision. The bottom line is I didn't go to Art Center, but I did move to L.A. to be an artist. 
You know, I moved to LA and I'm like, you know, I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm going to be an artist. And, and by the way, because I had the architecture background, when I was at Landor, it was kind of designed like a brain. So you had the right and the left side. So you had word mark where like they created the names for drinks for Dole Pineapple or like the names of cigarettes for Philip Morris or, you know, I mean, it was just this yep. curious place. And then they had this design pit with these designers, a lot of whom were graduates from Art Center. So I met mm. there. So I was in these designers and it just was this fascinating kind of think tank. And I worked there all through college and then after college. And I was like their Swiss, I was a resident Swiss army knife. I worked, I helped design like the Shell oil station, like, you know, like just, I worked on some cigarette, you know, just, and I was there when they unveiled the new Coke and everybody was really disappointed in the new logo. You know, it was a big <laughs> deal. It was just like all these kind of, but it felt very important too. So I felt like I could withstand any kind of critical eye my my dad was just the biggest love, but he was sort of like I wanted. He wanted to make sure I wasn't going to just be an art, you know, like it needed to be a real career, and it it all felt very real, you know, right. writing speeches, working for you know, doing architecture, doing design. But then eventually, I just kind of popped and I moved to LA, and I love I love it here because nobody cares where you went to school, what you did. It's like, can you do it? Do you show up on time? You're hired. That's cool. And so when you started, when you embraced this and said, I'm going to be an artist, what did you start working on? What was like, what was your medium? What kind of work were you doing? Well, so when I was at Berkeley, I was, I was valedictorian in literature. So I, I had to write the speech for, and so I lit my, my studio was next to an art store on, it wasn't Telegraph, it was Durant, maybe it was just sort of like in the south side of campus. And my freshman year, when I would walk by the art store, I would walk in and I would just like, I would mess around with acrylics. You know, I, I wanted, a, I wanted, I was always drawing. So like drawing was like I had down, I could draw, I was so, I could do photorealistic anything. And I could draw from imagination. I'm a, I, I was really good with the point. And I still to this day consider myself a recovering drafts person because I needed to free myself of that kind of exactitude in order to become a painter. I mean, this is again, worth of a whole podcast. We could just, we could right. just talk about this because what, what I'm teaching a lot of my students now is how to unlearn how to draw so that you can paint with a child's, you know, with, you can paint without this restrictiveness that drawing imbues in your mindset. If you're, I you know, know exactly you know what, I'm what you're about, talking about because right? I'm struggling with that very thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would go to the art store and these were the days, and I don't want to date myself, but I think we're around the same age, but mm -hmm. it was this, there were these things called record stores <laughs> and I was like really into music. And there was also a record store in here on the way back from school. And I used to stop in the record store and I remember just almost every day and I would like discover an album and I would be like, I love this album. If I like this album, you know, especially if I was really into Bowie at the time. And then, and then I was like really into these bootleg versions of Bowie that were produced in other countries and, or live concerts. And then I was really into the Velvet Underground and The Cure and just sort of this, just very 
and then I got really into soul and Luther Vandross and, you know, just stuff like you, you wouldn't hear unless you had the album, you know? Mm -hmm. So I got very, very deeply into all these different kinds of music. And I was always at the record store so that when I was working or drawing or painting or whatever, I was like, had my music and I was, I had CDs, actually CDs had just come. I think I was like, it's so big, but I was like, but you know, it's the violin is so tinny on a CD compared to, right. an, you know, I was all <laughs> yes. specific in that way. And um, so I would do that at the art store. And I said, so I was like flirting with oil, but I didn't feel like I deserved to do oil because I knew two things. I knew that it was somehow dangerous. Like I knew you had to paint with solvents and my roommate would never like put up with that. Mm -hmm. That's That was a given, you have to use solvents. And I also felt like you had to kind of earn it. Like it wasn't just like nobody, it was like being an artist. Like you couldn't just be an artist, you had to like, be a doctor first before you got to use oil paint or something like that. Right. Right. So I said to the lady, I kept like buying, I would buy a color and I would say, tell me about this red. Like, tell me about the color red, like this tube. And I would hold up the color and she'd say, okay, well, see, this is cadmium red. And this one is cadmium red light. This is cadmium reg regular, cadmium red deep. I said, but this one in the middle, this is literally, she would, the way she described it, and she worked there the whole time I was in college. She would be like, it's like exact, it's like not too blue, not too orange. It's like a fire truck, the perfect red. Like it doesn't get more perfect. So I would buy a tube of that red and I would put it in my backpack and carry it with me around to my lectures. And, and I would just have these little colors in my backpack. So that was my first foyer into oil painting i wasn't actually using it i just started collecting these paints hmm. so when i was writing the speech for my valedictory address which is all it was like the, the, there was a lot but it was a big deal i just thought you know i think i'm gonna break out when i got chosen i was like all thrilled with myself and i was like i think i'm gonna break out those oil paints like as a treat you know just try it and I dipped my brush into a little solvent. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. I never went to class for it or anything. And I just started to paint with it. And I, and it wasn't like acrylic. I just knew that went like the first stroke, I was like, oh, I'm like, this is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life. And then it's ever since that moment, it was like, how do I figure it out? How to make that happen? So right afterwards, even when I was at Landor, I was like taking classes at night at the San Francisco Art Institute. And I started taking these oil classes and just making these really big, messy, sloshy paintings, like just big fields of color. And that was when I started painting in oil, it was right after I graduated. I mean, right before I graduated, like months before I graduated. Oh, I wanna say one more thing. Around the time that my father and my mother for so for my like bat mitzvah they they had sent in my drawings to interlochen and i got in but i didn't know what it was and then on the way there we went to the museum of modern art in new york where i had never been i'd never been to new york even though i was born there i was born in new york we raised in california and then went to moma and we were tug I was tugging on a sleeve and I was just like, what is this? I, I was seeing all this art I had never seen before, you know, and people kind of people don't appreciate today where today you can just look up anything and you can see it. But before all you saw were the art books in your house. Mm -hmm. It's kind of amazing to think about that 
our eyes only saw a very narrow, 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 limited view of art. And it was always this highly curated best of greatest hits of whatever that artist was. And usually it was Moreau, Kandinsky, and Matisse, if you were lucky, you know, like Picasso, mm -hmm. for sure. But it just was like, the, no women, forget that. But it was mm -hmm. just like a teeny, teeny, tiny, teeny little sliver. So suddenly I was seeing all this art. And I remember when I was standing in front of Kazimir Malevich's White on White, which is kind of like right near the stairwell at the time, like it was just sort of in this certain place, because I know that I, I always went back and visited my old friend. But that was the moment when I was 13 that I knew that I wanted to be an artist. And then all the time after that was just getting the courage to try it and then take the plunge. You know, it's just been, in, it's been like that. And that same trip was when I was tugging on a sleeve all the time, like, wow, well, I don't understand. Like, how come this gets to be a painting? And, you know, he would, but it led him to write the book Art and Physics, which ended up becoming a huge it was like white water river rafting through all the great masters, that book. You know, if you haven't read it, if you like I, science. I'm going and, to. Oh, it's phenomenal. I, I haven't, but I'm going to. And yeah. and, and the following book that you and uh, your your uh, brother and sister had uh, worked on as Oh, yeah, well. Leonardo's Brain. Right, yes. right. So I would say to anybody that's trying out is it takes, it does take courage. It really only takes courage. Because you don't need talent, because that's kind of, what is that? That's really, a, that's really a, a, a kind of like your aesthetic DNA. And some people who don't know how to do anything, like they don't know how to draw, are fantastic. You know, you don't really even need to know how to draw. You just need courage. Right. I, I've, I've seen artists who say openly, like they, they do amazing pieces in oil, and they're like, I can't draw. Like, I can't. But You don't need they, to draw to, to right. know how to paint. Right. They're not necessarily connected. And that's why I get frustrated sometimes when people talk about my work being pencil work. And I love drawing in pencil. I don't think I'm ever going to stop. Maybe I will. I don't know. Oh, the I would love to teach you how to oil paint. <laughs> if you don't know already, I would love to get you into that. Because it's very architectural. I, I think oil, because oil is done in layers. So acrylic dries in 30 minutes. It's just, I don't know how anybody, it's just, it, never mind the fact that it's plastic and the way that it dries so flat, but it just dries so fast. So you're constantly spending all your time mixing the colors. Whereas with oil, like I can mix a set of colors and it could be good for weeks if you add a little walnut oil on it. So you can be very thoughtful about it. And it's very, it's not only very sensual, but it's just, it's just a slow art. So right. you kind of put a layer on and then you have to wait a couple of days and then you add another layer. So it's almost like if you think about it, it's like putting very, very fine layers of glass over each other. But that if you ever wanted it to be opaque, you could make it opaque, you could make it translucent and you, you create these totems of color in layers. And yeah. once you learn the architectures, there's like four different architectures then you can do anything. And it's just like learning anything in music or any art. It's not, yeah, it's just, it's so great. Yeah, it probably does take some courage. And and uh, there's some fear that I'm, I'm going to like it more than what I'm doing. <laughs> right now for you, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, no, but you will. I swear, if you did, if you tried it, like that, I have that fear. I relate to that fear. 
And then I was right. It was true. It manifested for me as at, I think I was 22. I felt like, am I walking down the aisle with the wrong man? Because I was getting a degree in something else mm -hmm. or the wrong person, I should say. But, you know, mm -hmm. like I felt like I was I married to my degree or was I married to this thing that I wanted to run away with, you know? Right. So w when you started, were you doing more abstract work? In the beginning, I was being really abstract, which is kind of it's kind of interesting. I remember I was going through some kind of a breakup at one point and I was painting and I, I just was making these red and blue, huge abstracts. And the more that in the beginning when you're painting, you're just so excited by it. I, I can always also tell new oil painters because they use way too much thalo blue. <laughs> 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 they just use color differently than people that have had some experience with it. Like you can just, it's, they use too many colors all at once in general, but, but I was kind of painting my emotions and it was just sort of really, it was abstract and I, I loved Rothko and everything. And then I felt like I needed to, at some point I had these conceptual ideas of whole shows and bodies of work that I wanted to make in my head but they were very heady. They were like in my head and they were sort of in a way illustrative because it, and this in a way, I've now seen this so many times that I, it's that kind of cute that I thought I was being original when, when I wasn't, but it was something like where you have a riff off Magritte, ce n'est pas un pipe, you know, this is not a pipe, but mm -hmm. you show something else and you say it's not the thing or, you know, like it was just yeah. sort of storytelling. And then finally, I started, it actually, it, I really, I, well, I decided to paint a hundred nudes. And so for a long time I painted, I never showed my, everybody knew that that's all I was doing, but I didn't feel like, I didn't feel ready. So, and that's when I, I decided I wanted to see how light, I wanted to really understand light. So I decided to paint a hundred nudes in all sorts of different ways. So I'm a huge fan of artists like Lisa Uscavage, who paints those figures. And she's just, I think she's one of the greatest colors, colorists living today because the way she uses these very transparent layers of color is amazing. And, you know, of course, I love Cecily Brown. I love a lot of women artists. And I, I will mention here as well for the listener that any names you mention here, I'm going to provide in the show notes. So when people go through this and they consume the podcast and they're like, oh, I don't remember, that's always in the show notes. So I just want to highlight that to the listener as well. Great. So I put myself in my own sort of boot camp because I wanted to acquire the same muscle memory that with color and form as I had developed when I was studying classical piano really seriously. Like I just wanted to have it be in me. One of my first exhibitions in a gallery was based on kind of the ones that I selected from that exercise. And then that was an interesting thing because you see how people what people write about it and how people interpret what you're doing and whether or not, you know, then it becomes, is it about female sexuality and the gaze and me being a woman, painting women and, you know, and then it's funny because this was years and years ago, but now there's a website called Women Painting Women or something like that. Like there's, there's a whole kind of, I think when we start off as artists, we tend to go through a certain sequence of subjects 
against our will. And one of it, one of them is our own bodies commonly, mm-hmm. especially for women. And then other ones is, um, it's very common to become haunted by your past and you need to paint it out of you. So a lot of people spend like their formative years as a painter reflecting on their childhoods or their ancestors. And I always like, I always say it's like they're coughing up autobiographical hairballs. Like they're just, <laughs> they got to get it out. <laughs> right. And that could be years. That could be a decade of an artist's life. And then it's not until you kind of like exhume, like you get all this stuff out of you that you can start saying other things. You have to come to terms with who you are before you can really start talking, before you can really start communicating other things. I think that's just a common series of, and, and I think I think the more the artist understands that some of these common paths that you're going to walk through, the better they're going to feel about not caring as much about perfection. And I think that's all about that in the beginning, like let yourself make mistakes, let yourself do all those things. You've given me a lot to think about <laughs> <laughs> already. So for your journey in moving through the abstract, um, and you've done some really interesting themed uh, exhibitions uh, that kind of led you through a journey. Do you feel that, maybe it's an unfair question, do you feel you are where you are now in that that's where you want to be? Do you feel that, like you said, everybody takes a different path and you know, maybe you can speak to some of these exhibitions you did, but, you know, working with kind of the stylists um, in that exhibition and then moving all through to, through that, um, maybe you can describe that kind of quickly as to how those evolved and to where you are now. Because I think that's, it's an excellent demonstration of, of how artists, it's really well defined for you as to how an artist, I'm not going to say evolves, but how their journey moves through time, right? In the sense that there is, it, it's clear that you're exploring this and this is tied to the next one and there's an exploration that's going on and you are here with me right now. And so I'm just wondering about if you can talk to that journey going through those exhibitions and how you feel about where you are at this point. Well, I mean, I think that just like I was saying you know, my one of my early exhibitions that got a lot of attention was Mom's Friends, because one of the paintings from those nudes, it just looked, it just in my mind reminded me of my, one of my mom's friends, you know, and I just called it Mom's Friends. And, you know, there's this sort of magical thinking that painters have, especially like in the beginning of your career. So if you, if like a painting sells first, even though you felt somewhat differently about all your paintings, the one that sold first suddenly takes on magical importance, you know, for example. Mm-hmm. And so this one was put into a show curated by a juror from MoMA, actually. So this this one called Mom's Friends. Okay. And I remember thinking, so I, I went to New York for the OP. It was like so exciting. And I was like, oh, it's, it's got voodoo magic in it. You know, like you have this, you, you have this magical thinking that's just, it's kind of like the painting you pick for the postcard of the show. Like, this is the painting that's going to make everybody go, I must see this show. Like, it's, right. a, it's just, so, <laughs> it's so, you just think, oh, it's got magic in it. So I painted this painting called Mom's Friends. And then I think that in almost every show I've done, and this happens with so many artists I know, 
where one painting from the show that sometimes will deviate a little bit or it just sort of does something that maybe is different than the others is a diving board painting turned for an entire body of work. So I landed a great gallery and I just kind of pitched a show. I said, you know, I really want to explore the idea of my mother and her friends in the 70s in Marin County at the like crest of the wave of the sexual revolution and how women were coming. To, but I didn't actually say that. I just wanted to focus on that topic. But that's how it ended up getting interpreted in the in the press. Okay. You know, like people, because I was painting in a palette of kind of like this faded green Polaroid look from that time period. So I kind of underpinned the vibe or the aesthetic with the media that you would see photographs from that time in. So it wasn't just like I was, and I, you know, I had my friends pose in fashionable outfits from the 70s that I borrowed from stores on Melrose that sold clothes from the 70s and 80s, you know, and mm -hmm. the way we wore and um, decades, you know, just these amazing places. And they, you know, I became friends with those people and I was like, you're going to lend me like all this, like this amazing amount of clothes so that I can take it to a warehouse downtown and do a photo shoot with my friends to recreate these. You know, I mean, I got really into it. Yeah. So that show was really put me on the map a bit in LA. Like I was in, you know, I got a lot of press for that. And that was really, and I, I did it also because my daughter was like three and she would watch me get ready if I was going out and she would walk around in her Barbie heels all the time. And, and I was looking at the way she was looking at me. And I was remembering about the way that when I was a little, how I used to watch my mother get ready. So it was just sort of this circle of life moment, you know, where yes. I just sort of felt like I wanted to capture the memory of looking up to my mother, my, her friends and my, and in the seventies was such an, we, you know, we had a stained glass geodesic dome in our backyard with a hot tub in the middle. And my mom's friends were very beautiful in Mill Valley and they would, you know, come and the big glasses and the, you know, it was just a situation. You know, everybody's wearing Lululemon now. That's not how it was. Right. You'd have like your silk blouse and your jeans with rhinestones on them and phones weren't invented yet so people were looking at each other they weren't looking at their phones so like when you went out it was like a time to celebrate mm -hmm. and that was a very artistic thing getting dressed so when i was doing that the owner of one of the stores the way we wore invited me or gave me tickets to a lecture at lacma on Elsa Schiaparelli and Coco Chanel and the influences of these designers on the paintings of Matisse. And it was with the Costume Council at LACMA. So I was like, great. You know, I'd already been borrowing these clothes for these photo shoots and I had my show and everything. And I, I've never, I had never been to a Costume Council, nothing. You know, I mean, I love fashion, but I just never, I didn't even know what that was. And it was just a lot of women who were so well curated. I mean, they, they, 
and this is LA is a totally different scene than the Bay Area. I mean, we should do like a series of podcasts about why San Francisco and Los Angeles are different. How? Because <laughs> that's a fascinating subject. But anyway, I would go, I was sitting in the audience and I was listening to the lecture with the slideshows about the, you know, the influence of these two famous fashion designers on the paintings of Matisse and his use of textiles and Suzani's and all that stuff. And I was looking around me and I could not get over the audience. Like people were decked out in McQueen and, you know, just fashion that I didn't even, I did not know the difference between haute couture and ready to wear or anything like that. I didn't know anything. And I was sitting there and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be cool to paint the most highly articulate people in fashion if they styled themselves and posed for their portrait? It's just sort of popped in my head because right. every single one of these people that I was surrounded by at the costume council at LACMA in Los Angeles at that time and then at that moment should have been a painting like every single one of them with the purse and the shoes and the nails like it just was wondrous and so that was also a really interesting journey because I went to the newsstand, which was these places where it used to sell newspapers. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> I used to these places that used to sell like, you know, things that you used to look at when you, you know, went to the hair salon or whatever. You would look at these things called magazines. Yeah, they were printed on paper instead of they glass. They were printed on this thing called <laughs> paper. <laughs> anyway, so, and I got the mastheads for all those magazines. And this was before blogging was really invented. Or this was just at the moment that blogging, before Instagram, before Facebook, before any of that. So blogging wasn't a thing. The way that you saw fashion was in magazines. So I contacted each stylist and creative director. And then I learned that, by the way, this is, again, major digression, but there's this whole ecosystem of that person. There's stylists, there's costume designers, there's celebrity stylists, there's, you know, I mean, it's just a whole big thing. And the top mm -hmm. of the, the top, top was the magazine creative directors. So when I got Grace Coddington to sit for me, you know, and I flew to New York and I met with her and she wore this, you know, she like laid down on her leopard divan and spread out her red hair and she had all her cats everywhere. and. I mean, that was just an incredible experience. And then when I when that show went up in Los Angeles, in Culver City, Vanity Fair contacted me and they wanted to remount the show as their debut party for the Oscars and celebrate all the people that I had painted because those are the people that styled the celebrities that went, you know what I mean? And then they, yep. so it was their Oscar, it was like their big Oscar week. So it was like this time, whenever that was 10, 15 years ago, or whenever that was, when they threw this huge party for me and I sat, I walked into this place and it was just very Hollywood. It was so, it was like this fabulous mixture of Hollywood and art. Everybody was decked to the nine because it was a show celebrating the stylists. And of course, um, Ryan Felipe had just broke, uh, what's the name of the actress? Oh my goodness. So the one that broke up the Abby Cornish, is that a name of an actress? I think it is. I'm well, if I, if this. it's not that there was this scandal, like on the order of Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, okay. there was a scandal, scandal that had to do <laughs> with that marriage. And I can't remember who broke up with who or whatever, but somebody arrived at that show in a red dress. And by the way, it was the perfect red. It wasn't <laughs> right. too blue. It wasn't too orange. I think it was Abby Cornish or whatever the name of, not Audie, Audie Cornish. That's like the newscaster for NPR that does the Supreme Court or maybe that's Nina Totenberg. Anyway, <laughs> this was the actress, whichever the name was. We'll have to look it up. 
But yes, I will link to it. <laughs> it was, it got just a bajillion, it was just such a moment. And I remember going to that and my kids came and I just remember thinking to myself, if I wish I could have told myself when I was 21 and wondering if I could, if I was allowed to put a brush down a piece of cotton, you know, I wish I could have said, hey, guess what's going to happen? Right. <laughs> I was just, it was so crazy, you know? So anyway, that was just a big, that was a big deal. You asked me before I came on here, you said, what are, what are you most proud of? I have total amnesia. I don't remember anything. I just, rem I don't, I never feel like I did anything great, but then every now and then I'll remember something and I'll be like, oh, I want to just suck on that moment, like a caramel, just like savor it. But anyway, I'm just doing it now talking to you. So that was exciting. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I wanted a caramel moment, so I'll check that off the list. That, That's good. That is it, baby. So, but then after that, I got so obsessed. I painted like 30 stylists and it somewhat, it started to become this conceptual art project because instead of me like being a part at one with the paint, it was all about whether or not I got that eyelid correctly so that this person, whether it was like Rachel Zoe or, you know, the, at the time, very famous, you know, but it wasn't going to be worried that she didn't like the way her eye looked, you know, like mm -hmm. I just was, it just, you can get, when you do portraits of living people, it's stressful. You know, it's, it's like you want it, you want it to be, there's so, there's so many variables because you want to capture the right moment, the right mood, the right expression. And I was doing like some like Albrecht and the Memento Mori, and you'd have like a skull and a thing and, you know, one, you know, and anyway, but it, it allowed me to do like a major, major deep dive into portraiture. So whereas with my first show, the whole story, I painted a hundred nudes and then I did like the hundred portraits. I felt like, like I really felt like I understood portraiture in a very deep way. And then that was when I just, I started to stop painting people. And that was really closely around that time my father passed away. And I then went on to this journey, which I kind of feel like I'm still in. And it's been about eight years now where I paint, I start to paint people and then I paint them out. So then I became, I'm painting interiors and environments and architecture and landscape and they're sort of spooky and usually there's people underneath there that you can't even see or there's there you can sort of see and right now I've been starting towards this journey for to abstraction but unlike the abstraction I started out with when I was in my early 20s this is a different I'm so much more uh, facile with what I'm doing I was just really messing or I was making a big mess before now I really know I, I feel like I know what I'm doing. So this book that I have coming out, the new oil painting, you know, most books about painting suck the the covers. It, it's astonishing how art books, books about making art are so extraordinarily bad. Like if you go to like a gallery and you get a catalog, they're gorgeous. But if you learn, get a book about how to paint or what's in paint or anything like that, it's just literally the worst graphic design job usually it's a, a a piece of a landscape and maybe it's a bad landscape and then it'll have some wonky font and it's just like a situation so I was determined I said to the first thing I said to my publisher was a great publisher I said look I want to do a cover that that looks like the kind of 
cover you would see for a catalog for a, a show. Like I want it to be like, and I don't want it to have a landscape on it. I don't, it, it can't have a landscape. It needs to capture the idea of painting. And so I started making all these 20 by 16 paintings of the idea of painting, which is very abstract. And one of them is now the cover of the book. And then it's also the, my next exhibition, which opens June 10th with Savitas Marcus in Los Angeles. So, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I felt like I've been on this journey towards abstraction my whole life. It's sort of where I started. It's sort of the, the dark matter, the ether that I'm floating in, but I had to paint all these things out of me. And now I plan on, you know, I'm going to swivel in and out of this subject, I think for probably the rest of my life. I have to say, when I saw the cover of your book, I could smell salt from the ocean. Is that wrong? (laughs) It does have a implication of an atmosphere. Right. Yeah. So I want to ask you, and I don't know if this is going to get metaphysical or not, but um, do you feel that your move from portraiture to abstraction runs in parallel to people leaving your life? It's so interesting that you said that because one of my collectors, when she got the catalog, I noticed it was called I Noticed People Disappear. That was the name of that exhibition. I mean, I've done like four exhibitions of that ilk, but that was the name of that one. She said she saw all these ghostly figures going out. She said, this is about your dad. And I was like, what? I started to cry. I just burst into tears. But I wasn't conscious of that. And that's when you know you're getting into a good, that's when you know you're really doing well in terms of accessing the subconscious part of you, which you really can't do until you paint out all that other stuff. Hmm. So your new book is called? The New Oil Painting. The New Oil Painting. What would your dad say about this book? Oh, he would be so proud. I think, I mean, he would just be, he would be so proud. That's awesome. Yeah, he he would, he would love it. So what's in the book? What can people expect? And I, and I'm going to preface this with, this is a, a consumption market now that relies on YouTube and Skillshare and all of this, right? So what's in the book and what can people expect as part of integrating that with their creative journey? So this book is not how to paint, like how to paint. It's not like that. It's part of a much larger book that I have in the works. And this is just like a teeny sliver about it because when I teach painting, whenever I've taught painting at workshops, I was so frustrated by the absolute the, the general lack of knowledge about what people were using to paint with. Just the, the materials are so fascinating and beautiful. And I knew that if I could shine a hot white, like hot light of science onto what it is they were using, like organic, inorganic, and how things, how oil paint dries and the long spindly molecules that weave together like braids and then release heat as it grabs an oxygen molecule, you know, just sort of, but I, but I mean, also, I, I write, it's, it sounds like I'm talking. So I'm kind of, it's not scientific writing at all. But I knew that I could demystify what it is that people were painting with. And the big, big, big thing is that too many people don't paint or they stay away from oil painting because they think it requires solvents and it doesn't. That was just a misconception that was perpetuated by a daisy chain of men sorry, <laughs> daisy <laughs> chain of daisy chain of 
mostly men, basically, but, you know, writers who said, oh, well, I saw it in this deep manuscript, you know, and then this must be how it was. And you have Charles Eastlake and Ralph Mayer, who devotes like six pages to oil painting. And he says, oh, yeah, the medium you need is a third turpentine and a third Damar varnish and a, a third linseed oil. But the only reason why you need turpentine is to dissolve resin. You don't need turpentine to dissolve oil. It weakens the paint film and it's bad for you. It's bad for the painting. It's bad for you. And, and it, you know, it causes all these neurological disease. You know, there's so many people I know that have gotten sick. So I got sick. I got sick and I was in a studio with in Venice with not great ventilation and I just started to have trouble breathing and I thought, I've got to get, I, I got to get under the hood here and know what I'm doing. I mean, I want, I need to know why I can't use these smelly things anymore. I had started a column called First Person Artist, which I still have, and now I, I interview other artists all the time. And I just inter had a great interview with Umar Rashid, who's also known as Frohawk Two Feathers. And next month I'm interviewing Myra Kalman, the artist. And that's firstpersonartist.com. If anybody wants to attend a live Zoom event, I think you'd like it. But I was interviewing all these artists and Ariana Huffington asked me to found the art section of the Huffington Post. She was like, darling, why don't you write for me? I said, you don't have an art section. I said, okay, well, she said, well, then you make it. And I was like, are you, <laughs> are you kidding me? Are you serious? Like, if you're really, really serious, I'll do it. But I need to know that like, you'll hire somebody to make, so I'm not like doing the whole thing. Right. You know, so that grew to huge. And then I was asking scientists and artists and conservators to weigh in on the science behind. And so I got really kind of into it. And that's how this book came about. This was about 10 years ago. And I, everything, and then I worked with this professor at Stanford, organic chemistry professor at Stanford. I made all these drawings. So it's illustrated, it's fun, but I wanted a little black book, like the elements of style, but for, just for oil painting that you could like put in your pocket and just have in your studio. And I've shown the advanced reader copy to other artists who have been painting for 30 years and they they say there's so many things i did not know wow about the oils about all them all of it you know i'm what's intrigued me is i've had quite a few guests on here who paint in oil and so i've been kind of yelling down at the field what's it like i'm gonna <laughs> and... get you to paint in oil you're gonna love it <laughs> and i think that i've always been worried about you know, the cadmium, all that kind of stuff. I've been worried about the turpentine and the smell. I did try oils like 25 years ago, and it just bothered me. It doesn't, it didn't bother me as much as watercolor does now, because I'm really- The smell. Well, back then, well, no, it was more that I expected it to dry, but I had no, I just like, I'm going to go paint. And I bought a, a, there was a magazine called Photo, which was like a, a series of photos, like a photo contest. And I picked a photo and I just started painting. And it's like, I'm, I'm no good at this. So I stopped. I'm in my 20s at the time, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. So I haven't tried oil since. I'm trying to do watercolor and I can do watercolor with, with urban watercolor sketching. Watercolor is so much harder than oil. Watercolor is so, because you can't erase, you can't right. undo, you can't command Z nothing, you know. Well, like, that's it's it. Done. Yeah. And that's why I've been, you know, I always have a tube of white gouache because I just, I, I can't, uh, I can't trust myself not oh, to do it. Oh, you so. need to take one of my work. I have this workshop called Oil Painting Fluency and Flow. Okay. Because it's a 10-week workshop and I open it a couple times a year and it's like this great 
it just breaks it down. And so, and then people get obsessed when they get, when they take that workshop. And then I have another one called, it's a master class and it's for build a body of work to build the body of work. And it's over six months and my students make 18 paintings and they build a body of work and they can talk about it. And it's like, but, but they all start off with oil painting, fluency and flow. Huh. All right. We're going to have to have a conversation, I think, after this <laughs> after this recording. I'm intrigued, um, especially if, like, and that's the thing in this book, if you address the idea that oil painting doesn't have to be smelly and dangerous, that's what you wanna, intrigues You want to know what book. the secret is? It's so cool. It's chalk. Chalk is marble dust, CaCO3, and it when it becomes clear in oil. So when you mix chalk and oil, it extends, it thins it extends the intensity of the paint. So imagine that, let's go back to that red, red, cadmium red. Like, let's <laughs> say you wanted it to be a fine layer that was somewhat translucent instead of just a red paint. And you mixed it with, you put oil and in chalk and you mixed it, it forms a putty. And then if you mix that in with the red and then you dragged it across, it would look like a see-through red. It wouldn't make it whiter it would mm. make it less tiny color red rocks in the same amount of oil because the white, which is now clear, it almost acts like it's as if it's glass. Huh. Yeah, anyway, it's all in the book, but but okay. chalk is the secret. You just don't need, I just have a little thing of chalk and a little bit of oil and I never use, you know, I, unless I'm gonna make a strategic drip, I might do it for that, okay. but you know, for, for turp, but other than that, I. I, and, and if I do, I only use OMS because it has a lower evaporation rate. Oh my goodness, I'm such a nerd. OMS is? O odorless mineral spirits. Okay. I just wanted to clarify that. For so turpentine well. is like, you know, go get it at Home Depot. O odorless mineral spirits is actually better for thinning alkyds, but that's like, a, I'm going to get too technical, but it's all in the book. It's all in the book okay. and it's super clear. It has my crazy illustrations, which makes it super accessible and fun and it has color pictures. And I think it's just the book that I wish I could have handed to that 20 year old version of myself in college that was taking my first stroke. You know what I mean? Uh, that I would like to say, just read this and you, I would skip a decade. And, and that's awesome that, uh, you know, the organic chemistry and everything that you took you were able to apply towards your art, right? So. I knew enough to be dangerous. I was like, you mean oil drying is exothermic? That's amazing. <laughs> like, that's why linseed oil, rag soaked in linseed oil, they're worried about them combusting. You know, I mean, it, it it's never happened to me, but you should always have like a, a metal garbage can. You And you, they have like small ones, like a teeny little right. metal tin where you keep them just in case, God forbid, puh, puh, it explodes. Yeah. <laughs> never has but you know <laughs> that's good that's good you're still here yeah so the book comes out it comes out may 18th i okay. got a notice from my publisher yesterday that there might be a little delay when it arrives to the warehouse and i suspect it has to do with that huge ship that got wedged in the suez canal but that's because i have an active imagination i have no right. idea yeah. well that makes it an even more special book that it was the book that was stuck in the yeah canal. <laughs> exactly that's what it feels like to, you know, ha make a book and promote it's, a book. Yeah, it's got the power to stop a boat. So. <laughs> exactly. So it's available for pre-order. So if people want this, pre-ordering is a good thing because it helps to it helps you please, in sales please, and I rankings. I would love that. Yeah. 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 So for sure, I'll provide a bunch of links because uh, there'll be all kinds of locations. I think I found a page 
you were linking to uh, Canadian sites and U.S. sites, and so I, I yeah, think it's new, available it's everywhere. It's called newoilpaintingbook.com okay. is the link. Okay, I'll provide a link to that. That's awesome. I want to ask you about this book and that experience in creating this book. What was that like? Because I've had people who've you know self-published or published through you know the um, the regular process before, and I'm just wondering about how was that process for you? How long has it taken? Will you do it again? <laughs> Okay, so I actually, I wanted to write an essay about this because I thought, I, I started telling a friend what it's like to publish a book, you know, with a traditional publisher, and and they thought it was hilarious. So I'm going to tell you what it's like for me. So when I first published this book, it I, I published it with a small publishing company called Griffith Moon in Santa Monica, and it was just like a little teeny slip of a book, but it was really to make it so that I could hand the information to people. So it was like self-publishing it. It wasn't traditional. And that copy got in the hands of Chronicle Books. And so now this is a very technical book. So maybe this is why. But what it felt like was, so let's say, now I have two kids. So let's say you have a baby. And so you, you're pregnant, and then you've written this book, and you've read it a bajillion times. You've listened to it. You've read it. You've crossed all the T's. You've dotted the I's. And then you have the baby, and then you go home, and you feel great. But you don't even have the baby. You just you you deliver the manuscript to the publisher, and then you get a brand new car, a convertible, and you wear all white, and you put on some big seventy sunglasses, and you go down the highway, maybe the one, not even the one hundred one. You just like I'm gonna, I am so free. I just dropped off that book at the publisher. I delivered the manuscript. I got a deal. It's great. I'm going to go for a ride. And you just drive and drive and you have adventures and you stop at restaurants and you visit friends. And maybe you go up to, you know, Vancouver and then you go all over. I'll visit you in Ontario. You go all over the country. Everything's amazing. And then at one point, you'll be on the freeway 15 lifetimes away from delivering that manuscript. And a white van will pull up next to you while you're going about 80 miles an hour with like a suntan and you feel like so free because you just let the you know the, the book is not even you don't even, did you write a book you don't even remember and they will uh, slide the door open while you're going 80 miles an hour and they will throw an octopus in your convertible on fire and you're driving and you look and you see this octopus and you're like, what is this? You don't even know it's like got legs and arms and it's on flames or everywhere. And you just <laughs> immediately are like, I, I got to pull over and you pull over. And then you get to the side of the road and cars are driving past you and you're sort of all unsettled because let's say you have like a life going on and you have like something to do that weekend or you have something, you know, it's just all the stuff going on. And then you have to find a hose and you got to spray it out the fire and then you've got to like get the flames away and you got to get the steam off and then you got to unfurl the octopus legs and then you got to go, what is this? And then you have to like figure out what it is. And then you have to respond to the notes of the editor. <laughs> and, and because so it's disorienting. It's not like it's not like a painting where you have like this intimate, sustained interaction with over a long period of time. With mm -hmm. a book, when you finish that last manuscript and you drop it off at the publisher, you get to put it out of your mind and work on something else or whatever. But then enough time goes by that. So that happened about three times where I like was just, you know, carefree in my jumpsuit and my sunglasses and the sun and my convertible. 
you know, blue BMW, whatever it was, you know, just with white pants putting octopus, octopi on fire (laughs) in my passenger seat. So anyway, then eventually you have to, you know, you have to let go and beg for a couple times. And it's just a weird thing. So and then in terms of publishing a book, like it hasn't come out yet. So I don't know. But that's what it's like after you drop off the manuscript. I hope that was as entertaining to you as it was to me. But that is what it felt like to me. That's, um, yeah, I think I'm okay with writing a book for a bit. (laughs) I don't think I need to do that. But that's exciting. I'm looking forward to this book. I'm going to put it on my list along with your dad's books. Oh, yeah. Um, They're the best. Leonard Schlein, Brain with a Schla, no C. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Well, I will link to... uh, to at least two of those books, the art and physics and the... Yeah, you can go to leonardschlain.com because it has those books and, you know, okay. lectures that he's given. They're fantastic. That's awesome. I will do that. I just wanted to, to go back to your creative process because you've talked about this before. You did a TED Talk on the steps, the process. And I wonder if you can talk quickly about that. And then I have a couple of questions for you on it. So the creative... When I was arts editor or I was, you know, I I wrote an essay called The Creative Process in Eight Stages. And I put a pink, I put a canvas in the middle of my studio, and I did a dissection, a total dissection kind of internally of what what was, I I wanted to come up with a, a universal one, not just for me. Just to make it very quick, the first one was vision, like you have an idea. And then I wanted to acknowledge the second one, which is hope because that's when you get filled with, you sort of swell with excitement about the prospect of that happening. And then the third stage, which was the scariest one, which most people never get to, is diving in. It's where you just, you begin. You touch the white, the white page, the, the white canvas, or you know you, the first word on the page of a book. So diving in, I identified as the one that like, I I decide like most people are in the first two, they have ideas, and they get excited about it. And then they like, the ideas go away, and they don't dive in. But then after diving in, I wanted to get to the infinite, it's like, I said, excitement, suspicion, you know, uh, not depression, but I originally had depression, but just sort of you, you go into this Mobius strip, it's not like a loop. It's like it's like one of those Escher things with the ants, you know, mm-hmm. it just kind of never ending. And you can you can stay in those four phases that have to do with oscillating between feeling good about it, feeling bad about it, doubting yourself. And that those four stages are very real, you know. And then the last phase is resolution where you feel like you're done. It's like, okay, I, I, I know where I'm going and then now I'm going to finish this. Now, some artists don't ever have that feeling. You know, Aaron Copeland, the composer, never felt like he finished any composition. He just felt like he abandoned them. I know when I finish a painting. In fact, it's funny because I have like a clipboard in my studio with thumb. When I'm getting ready for a show towards the end, I have a clipboard. And at the end of an exhibition, right before the works are about to get picked up, I feel like when my dad used to take me on rounds, he'd have a clipboard and he'd have all the patients on the clipboard. Mm-hmm. So I have like a series of like postage stamp size, a grid of like nine paintings per page. So let's say I have 18 or so or 20 paintings. And then I hold up the clipboard and I like 
put them up, a, a, you know, lean them against the wall. And I take notes on like, what, what I need to do with this to make it done. You know, like, what do I, like, is this missing a cello? Right. <laughs> you know, is this missing, you know, what is this missing? And it's very funny because it's, it just reminds me of having, of being a doctor. So I am a doctor. Mm-hmm. I'm just doing triage at the very end. That's you know? it. Yeah. 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 That's it. So, um, but what I've come to appreciate is that even though that I gave a TED talk about it and all this, but that the creative process in eight stages is that there's a first stage that happens before the beginning idea stage, which is really quiet. It's like a rest in music. And it's when you look like you're not doing anything, but you're really actually entering the beginning of the creative process. So you need to just turn off your damn phone to have that happen. And then the next one, that I would put at the very end is you need to tell people about it. And a lot of people don't, they don't consider that a part of their creative process. So they hate the publicity and they hate, you know, exhibiting the work or not that they don't, let's say they want to get a gallery, but they don't like having to promote it. And I've decided that that has to be a part of it. You just have to acknowledge that it's a part of it you meaning me mm-hmm. otherwise because it's part of the life cycle of creativity that allows you to create more i mean you can't ever not everybody can just be emily dickinson like oh your dad's gonna find all your papers and then make you famous when you're dead <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know like or whatever yeah yeah so are you still using that process now it's not a using it's not some explicit thing i was just sort of analyzing it to become uh, you know, I figured if I could name it, if I could understand it better, that I could, then I could be better at it. And, you know, the truth is, is that I think social media is a real asset and a destroyer of creativity. And a lot of, you know, I have a set it and forget it crockpot attitude with Instagram. I like schedule posts for months in advance and then don't look at it because I can't be checking and like, oh, I'm going to, I like what I just did. I think I'll take a picture of it and post it. And ooh, that didn't get as many likes as, you know, it's just not good for you. So I I need the quiet in order to create. So I am measure, I am thinking about it in terms of how I'm interacting with social media, which I loathe, (laughs) even though I'm glad it's how you found me. (laughs) Yeah. So with regard to the paintings, and I think I heard you talk around this in another interview, and I just wanted to explore it a little bit because I found it interesting, and I want to hear how you're going to approach this. Uh, I didn't send this to you in advance. So (laughs) when I do pieces, when I draw, I'm typically drawing animals. I like to get the eyes down first. And for me, when I draw, I already see the animal. I'm I'm just laying down the graphite to bring it out of the paper. Okay, Mike, you're going to, you're not going to like what I'm going to say. That's okay. That's okay. Go ahead. Let's hear the question. (laughs) And, uh, I like to get the eye done because I feel like the animal talks to me. I feel like the animal will guide me in completing the image. And if I don't, and that's just the way that I've been working. And I wanted to ask you, when you're doing a piece, you start it as you, as the the artist, and you start applying the paint and you start working on this. If I look at you as Dr. Kimberly Brooks, who's giving life to this creative piece... When do you hand off the existence of that painting to the painting? 
versus oh, being the one. Oh, that's such a good question. I didn't <laughs> so, think it was going that way. You surprised me. I did. <laughs> but but I, I just have to tell you before I answer that question, which is a great mm -hmm. question, mm -hmm. is that I have a chapter in the best practices section of the new oil painting called Don't Start With The Eye. I okay. swear to God, <laughs> I do. So, um, because I say that that's when people suffer from premature articulation. Hmm. That's one of the pitfalls of be starting off with drawing. Okay. And that goes back to this discussion that we had in the very beginning about color versus line. So I totally hear you. I'll never forget when I painted my first portrait and I was, you know, you want to work back to front. So you want to kind of get the overall space and you, you sort of zero in. It's almost like you want to you know where the land is, you put poles where the architects, you know, where mm -hmm. the house is going to be, and then you build the house, and then you decide what the floors and the window, and then eventually you put in the couch and this, and then at the very last thing you do is you put the flower on the sill. Right. I mean, or, you know, on the, on the table. Yep. And you don't do that kind of level of detail at the beginning. Right. You might with the eye, but even, even I would say, now I haven't been a drafts person like drawing, drawing, drawing like I used to do for years. Like I said, I'm a recovering drafts person, but I'm recovering because I used to start with the eye and that held me back with painting. But when you first paint a portrait for the first time and you get the eye so that it looks like an eye and it's right. actually looking back at you, it's such a powerful feeling, you know? It's so astonishing. It's almost like you, it takes your breath away. That very first time when you see one of something that you created look back at you, it's, it, there's not, there's, there's no bigger, greater power than perhaps having a baby, which I've had twice, which I've had twice where I made a baby, I made something alive. <laughs> but, um, so I believe that for painting, and I would even venture to say to some degree for drawing, but I, you know, like I said, I, and I haven't painted an eye in a very long time because the stylist project just sort of did me in with the eyes. Right. Because I remember spending like a whole Saturday on like a tear duct, you know, just like, got to get that right. But in terms of talking to the painting, that is really what I'm dealing with with abstraction because it's, you know, very early, you know, in the earlier phases, you can say, okay, I want to paint a series based on these ideas or this image series of images. And if you're just saying, okay, I'm going to paint my mother and her friends from the seventies, I'm going to take, you know, like that's, you become, when you're painting, you become the executioner of that, of making those illustrations be executed as beautifully or wonderfully as possible. Mm. But you're, but the, but the map is already created for you. So where I think painting gets really elevated and exciting is when you've left the map and you're not looking at a photograph anymore. Right. And, you're, and your source material is really just like a suggestion. Right. And that's why I, like, I have an advanced painting program and it's kind of like a painting club and it's all students trying to stop copying photographs because it's so easy to just copy photographs. And when you copy something that's two-dimensional, your the work ends up being two dimensional. Yeah, I just I found that really interesting because it's it is it does get to a point where you give it life and it takes you on a separate journey. I, I was I drew a woodpecker years ago 
and it it took me I think about 45 hours to draw the woodpecker I had to draw the tree it was on three times I erased the whole thing and this was just when I I think it was my fourth drawing or something and it got to a point where it winked at me and I figured <gasps> I'm done <laughs> it's good <laughs> we're done here <laughs> I'm losing my mind that's right well I, I took it as a good omen I, I told my yeah. wife I said it's it winked at me she's like okay <laughs> good good for you <laughs> that reminds me of that tick talk meme where the lady says how tell me that your your boyfriend or husband is never going to leave you without telling me he's never going to leave you right <laughs> then you would show you saying honey my drawing winked at me right good point <laughs> <laughs> yeah very good point <laughs> A lot of people listen to this actually when they paint. So, oh, really? Uh, yes, absolutely. I get that so often. People are like, I love listening to your podcast when I'm painting. You're like the Mark Maron of artists, you know, just sort oh. of letting, it go, <laughs> letting it go, you know. Well, that's, a, I had one review say that I was a mix between Mr. Rogers and um, Rob Ross. But that's actually, that, that's an interesting subject of Bob Ross because when I, te- in my online program, I think people thought it would be like Bob when you watch Bob Ross, you you don't really learn how to paint, but you get this enormous gratification of feeling like you're painting because the way your mind works is you get, there's empathetic mirroring going on in your mind. So when you watch somebody write on a chalkboard or paint, or that's why like they say drawing or taking notes, for example, is uploading. Right. Like that's why when you have kids and they're studying, if they're just studying with ever, without ever touching paper, if they actually take notes and rewrite what they're learning. I mean, this is conversation 42B. Paper is awesome. Everybody should write and incorporate it into their way of processing information. Mm-hmm. Not, just your, not just glass, not just iPad or phone, you know? Right. I mean, you have two girls now that are teenagers, I suppose, right? Yes. And I hope that they're inspired by what you're doing to not, just process information on glass because that's not as sad it's it's such an important important thing right i think i I agree and you know my daughter she's just finishing first year chemistry she wanted an ipad for her notes instead of paper but she writes them with the pencil and so it gives her that opportunity to write it down in a way that um, allows it to then drop into long-term memory when she sleeps because she's consuming it. She's right. She's writing it, but she's also consuming it. Um, so it gives her that opportunity because she she always took lots of notes in high school. But the but other is she writing with the iPad pencil? Yes. Hmm. Yeah, she's writing with a pencil. Like she she doesn't type like she does when she has to, but she's writing handwritten notes, calculus, organic chemistry, all of oh, that stuff. Oh, that's so interesting. So what the but the advantage then is so she's using that, which helps with the cognitive component of everything right and Mm -hmm. the um the advantage as well is that she can search the notes so she can type in a word and because her writing is is pretty good she can search for something as opposed to flipping through pages and so she's able to pull her notes together and she can cut and paste and draw images and things like that so it becomes a lot more functional especially in science that's really interesting. I know, no, I mean, when I was taking all those science classes, I had to write everything down and make all these little note cards and everything like that. Right. One, one little hot tip for your listeners, I would think, is that the way, the way that I draw now is with paint. And if you use burnt umber and ultra, ultramarine blue, 
mm-hmm. it's exactly and you and you mix those together and it's exactly the color of graphite hmm. it swivels a little bit because you know some might have a little more blue and some because burnt umber is rather ashy and so if you get the putty with the oil and the chalk and you and after you've toned a canvas which is dry and you loosely draw uh, the outlines of an image with those two colors it's a super neutral color it won't interfere with any top layer painting so i just i recommend that combination to my students and the other way to draw and i mean i i know i'm not i think i'm deviating a little bit but the other way i draw is i draw through subtraction so when i've toned a canvas for a painting and i want to kind of sculpt where the key shapes are going to be that Mm -hmm. I want or just mess around I just take a rag and I wipe away so that it's going to be wiping away to more of the white okay um that's underneath and so the rag is a key drawing tool for me because ever since I really you know I I do draw I do draw when I'm ideating, you know, when I'm kind of messing around in my little sketchbooks, but mostly I draw with painting. So I draw with paint with a rag or with a brush. Hmm. I don't know if I answered your question, but. No, I think that's, uh, but not thalo blue. No, I really think that's a, that's like that Dr. Seuss color where everything turns pink and they can't get rid of it. I used to tone canvases with thalo blue at the advice of a professor. And I thought, oh no, I'm never doing that again. Because you have to say, then then your painting on top has to end up being red because you need to kind of tame this wild beast, you right. know, of the underpainting. So you have um, courses available. You've been teaching for a while. You have courses mm-hmm. available for students as well. And that's yeah. um, that can be found on your site, right? Like, is that? Yes, KimberlyBrooks.com, FirstPersonArtist.com. Yeah. Okay. I have, I like, I have workshops and the master class opens up once a year. Occasionally it requires an application. You can go to KimberlyBrooks.com forward slash masterclass, actually, and see okay. the landing page for that. And if you want to apply and see if there's a space available, you can. That's the six months okay. class. But then oil painting, fluency, and flow, if you go to Kimberly, these are kind of hidden because I need to, I, I keep the, uh, the size limited, but they're really popular. I mean, people people love them, and then they end up taking all the classes. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're great. But they're not like Skillshare, like these are in person no these are these are kind of things they're zoom and they're the oil painting fluency and flow is over 80 recorded lectures with interviews with very well-known artists and breakdowns step by step and you can watch them as many times as you want in addition to live sessions awesome on zoom critiques okay i'll have to include links to all of that yeah so I wanted to ask you, like I normally do, for the listener is walking away with this. What can they do for homework? And what would you recommend for homework? Okay. Okay. I thought of this, and I have a great, simple, fun exercise. Okay. Is, well, if go to the art store and get some anything to paint on. I prefer linen if you can find it, but if you can, you know, and um, any kind of canvas and get oil and a little bit of chalk and get two colors any two colors you want like a cool and a warm and white and just paint with those for like a month see how many shapes you can make see how many colors you can draw out of it 
and really just don't add any other colors but those you could do burnt sienna and ultramarine blue or better yet raw sienna and cerulean blue is an insanely beautiful powerful simple combination just like a warm and a cool and just see how many colors how many shapes and shadows that you can make out of that 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 would be a great exercise if i if i were queen of the universe i would make it so that people weren't allowed to use color for like a year so this is a compromise okay yeah i've heard that from some of the schools as well they don't let you yeah. play with color for quite a while right yeah atelier schools yeah 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 so, so. If, if and so let me ask you this if you're somebody like me who hasn't done oils before uh does it matter what brush I use? Would you recommend a first or second brush? Oh my God, I have a whole module. I have a whole lecture about this topic, but there's basically, in to really be reductive and re, you know reduce yep. this really interesting topic, is there's two kinds of brushes. There's bristle and there's hair. Gen I mean, there's many kinds of brushes, but those are the right. two main kind. And most people make the mistake of starting with the hair first because it's soft and pretty, but they mm -hmm. really should start with the bristle. And the other thing about brushes is that most people make the mistake of starting with a flat, which is the kind that has an angled corner, because this is my theory anyway. I think people do that because they want to indulge the fantasy of them having control over the line width, like it's a calligraphy pen. Okay. You know, like they'll start off with a point and then if they lean in, they'll make it wider. But the problem is, is that when you lift it off the canvas, it makes a little triangle pucker. And then you got to chase that pucker around like your little hummingbird. It just sort of like, then you're like chasing around a little bird print all over your canvas. So I would recommend starting out with a shape called a filbert. So first okay. I, I would recommend starting out with a chip brush, which is like a cheapo, go to the paint store, don't even buy the expensive ones. You can get, I get them in bulk on Amazon and then laying down your initial colors that way and then start using with a filbert instead of a flat because the flat is really better for geometric paintings and you wanna learn how to sculpt with paint. So you want to okay. make it kind of round and make soft shapes without having chasing little bird prints everywhere. And so, and you're buying the paint, you're buying the chalk, you're buying any oil or anything? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit of, oh, any kind of refined linseed oil is fine. Oh, okay. I mean, not oil, all oils are alike, but just to get going, that's what I recommend. And of yeah. course, I recommend taking my class. Okay, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. So I wanted to ask you, We've covered this, I think, throughout the show, but where can people find you with regards to websites, uh, social media, where like, where can they find you online? They can go to my website, KimberlyBrooks.com. And if they want to attend my monthly live events on Zoom, and my next event is Myra Coleman, the New York illustrator, artist, goddess, one of my heroes, is May 19th. Okay. So if you want to sign up for those, just go to firstpersonartist.com or kimberlybrooks.com and my my Instagram account that I pretend to be on constantly but I'm really not <laughs> is Kimberly Brooks Artist. Okay. That's my handle. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I will provide uh links to all of that in the show notes and uh yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. 
Well, thank you so much, Kimberly, for uh, for agreeing to come on. It's uh, I'm really looking forward to your book. I would recommend people check this out and pre-order it if you have any bit of interest in oil painting or if you've been struggling with it or struggled with it in the past like I have and are maybe possibly interested in coming back to it. Uh, pre-order Kimberly's book and uh, check it out. So thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And this has been so informative, very entertaining. And uh, wishing you the best on your book launch and uh, your next exhibition as well. Thank you so much. That's awesome. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Show notes, including links to everything Kimberly and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 52. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, share, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help surface the podcast for others to enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. The music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod.